Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Tim, I'm not doing so hot. No. I'm kidding. I'm doing great. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing great as well. This conversation that we have today with our very talented guest, John Valley, is it's just a fascinating conversation. And we're talking about his movie that he made. It's called The Pizzagate Massacre. It's described as a dark social satire inspired by the real life conspiracy theory known as Pizzagate. And it touches on a lot of elements of that story and really conspiracy culture. And it really just pictures like how bad that could get i guess right yeah it's a uh viciously funny that's my own term viciously funny and emotional ride uh which john valley wrote and directed and it stars some really amazing up-and-coming actors tinus so plays the lead duncan plump and his partner in crime in the movie is played by alexandria payne it also stars lee eddy in this performance of this alex jones type talk show host I can't say anything more about it that John doesn't say in this interview because he articulates his motivation and the themes so well in this interview. And for me to just sort of blunder through them right now would do it injustice. So I really hope that everyone enjoys this interview with him. Super smart guy, super talented guy. Yeah, and if you're listening to this intro and you're like, well, I'm not going to listen to this episode because it's taken shots at my political beliefs, it, it really doesn't. It uh, it doesn't really take any shots necessarily. It talks about conspiracies, and conspiracies exist on both sides of the political aisle. So just picture it that way if uh, if you must. It's just an interesting story about the culture today. Okay, so I hope you enjoy it. Please follow us on social media. We're at Crawlspace Podcast or at Crawlspace Pod on Twitter. Thank you. And we wouldn't have John on if we didn't support this movie and if we didn't enjoy this movie. And we highly recommend it. You can watch it pretty much anywhere you can stream movies, Amazon, Vudu, YouTube. And feel free to follow him on Twitter at John M. Valley. We are being joined now by filmmaker John Valley. John, how are you today? I'm doing great today. Thanks for having me on. This is a real pleasure. Pleasure is really all on this side of the Zoom screen. It's so good to see that you're doing well and you're you're you you seem to be um, not under any sort of duress. Which I don't know if I was expecting that to happen, but um, you are a filmmaker, as Tim said, and you made one of the highlight films that I've seen so far this year. <laughs> and it great. just came out of the blue. But before we get into that film and its specifics, can you just give us a little background on you and um, how you got into filmmaking? And then we'll <laughs> we'll talk about this amazing uh, piece of art that you've made. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I grew up right in the middle of Iowa and just always had a love for movies as a little kid and, you know, had access to the family video camera at an early age. And it kind of started off as, as wanting to act. My, my older siblings were actors and they were all in the school plays. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing because you're literally watching adults play make believe. And so it was it was really kind of this acting obsession. And I would just film stuff as a kid, you know, that kind of uh, story, as it were. And that that just then morphed into it getting more and more serious. And I started making like 
feature length projects in high school, like for student projects. You know, I'd, I'd get into some art class or, you know, Spanish class or something where you can kind of turn an assignment into a video project and just have an excuse to shoot something on the weekends. And so that just became my like sole obsession on top of acting as well. I was doing a lot of community theater and work at the school and continued that into college for a couple years until I dropped out to make a movie and moved to Austin and kind of had to pump the brakes a little bit on the degree of how much I was filming and acting and stuff because I had to start paying rent. So got really heavily into music video production. Uh, just because they're so quick, the, the, the engagement is, so, is sort of a pretty small window of time. You're usually getting some financing from the band. And so I was just able to stay really sharp for pretty much like the last 10 years or so and uh, had a music project as well. And then that kind of led up to eventually making this movie, The Pizzagate Massacre, which is sort of like, you know, the product of three other movies that I had kind of developed over a few years and cannibalized into this one. Once we kind of got into this current political atmosphere that we're in, that was sort of the catalyst that sort of sparked this interest and, and desire to want to make this thing. Because, you know, it, it took it took a few years to, to where it got out. So we had to really be sure that what we were making was something that we thought was important and could care about for that long, especially during some of the darker seasons of the of the movie's lifespan. Right. And uh, the film is timely, even though sort of the event that it is based on happened a few years ago at this point. But it feels almost like ever timely because of the media angle and really the conspiracy angle, something that's not dying down anytime soon in uh, this country, at least. Right. And and you, you, you did say that the title of the film is called The Pizzagate Massacre. This event, this incident, this moment in history, this historical, truly effed up moment in history is the, the QAnon based conspiracy theory that there is a uh, group uh, this cabal led by the Democrats where they drain the blood, they terrify children, uh, they sexually assault children. It's a sexual trafficking ring, right down to cutting faces off and, and terrifying children and then drinking the adrenochrome, I believe it's called, from the children. Correct. So <laughs> this all started, I believe, on Halloween of 2016. That's when it became public. And that's what your movie's about. Your movie is really like this time bomb that's ingredients are what the media is telling you what you should be doing on your own thinking for yourself and also like when people are telling you what to think and how that's thinking for yourself and then acting for yourself like there's so much that goes into that and you said that you've been working on this movie for a while when did you decide that that was how it was going to be portrayed on screen that you were going to take this all and and put it into this form on screen the projects that I was developing ahead of time were going to be these like social satires and sort of I was developing this this approach to making a movie that is satirical insofar as like reflecting the worldview of its central character. I wanted to make something where you're you're in the head of somebody who sees the the world as a movie and sees themselves as the main character of their movie and somebody who's driven by these types of delusions of grandeur. And one of the main projects that I was kind of developing was this, it was going to be this like modern day satirical remake of Taxi Driver. And so I wanted to have this disillusionment and set that aside. That's like its own thing that's gestating. And then as just a 
person in uh, America. I was observing what was going on with the rise of Trump, uh, the rise of right-wing fringe media, and in particular, Pizzagate. And I remember seeing it and being pretty startled by it because it was immediately turned into this joke. And, and up until that point, folks like Donald Trump or folks like Alex Jones were kind of jokes. They were clowns. And seeing the consequences of the narratives that they were sort of like riding on that seemed very stupid and, and very uh, foolish for, to everybody else. Somewhere in there, I think I saw that this gets a lot worse and that this it's funny until it's not. And that's sort of the angle that the movie takes tonally and thematically is that, you know, you could argue the first half of the movie is kind of this adventure like road movie that's kind of, you know, something akin to Dumb and Dumber, which was one of the movies that I worked off of to kind of build this movie. And then the back half gets pretty sobering and pretty dark and sort of just trying to reflect that duality between these right-wing media characters who they're funny and they're entertaining, but then if they stick around long enough and they keep hammering this disinformation, eventually it's going to find its way to those who are susceptible to it, those who are looking for identity and, and, and need some kind of enemy to fight. Seeing that kind of play out with Pizzagate, it was very alarming and it really bummed me out because I just thought that if if 13 people would have been killed at the end of this event, if there would have been this bloodbath, we would have been calling it the Pizzagate Massacre. It, it wouldn't have been this punchline on Colbert that week. It wouldn't have been this funny thing that people just sort of like toss off to describe 75 million Trump voters. You know, it, it would have been something far more serious. And so the movie kind of was built on that. Like, we're, we're going to tell the version of this story that goes the other way. Like what happens if th that Pizzagate shooting, the attack that took place in, in DC, what if that would have went really south? And lo and behold, unfortunately, as we were making it and as we were editing it and trying to get it released, the movie just became more and more closer to reality. Quite frankly, like on January 6th, that was definitely a turning point for the movie. We started getting taken a lot more seriously by festivals and by uh, buyers and, and these distributors and, and streaming networks. So it was kind of that unfortunate case with the movie that we were just a little bit ahead of, I think, what everybody was about to see go down. In that sense, the movie became a little bit more valuable to me and meant a little bit more to me, but also then reminds you of kind of how wonky everything would get. Yeah, sure is. Well, that's interesting that the timing of it, that the film was sort of taken more seriously after January 6th, which was sort mm -hmm. of a moment where a lot of people who, I guess, followed conspiracy theories sort of pushed the limit there, which is kind of what happens in the Pizzagate massacre. And um, I really like how you explored the idea that someone who is wrong, it, you know, or can be wrong, say, using the Capitol riot example, smashing windows in the Capitol, that's wrong. Um, but in the moment, they think they're right, you know, and that's a, sort of a powerful thing to explore because, you know, someone who thinks they're right, I mean, what lengths will they go to? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, it, it's it's a, a compulsion. It's uh, their identity is wrapped up into it. Their fears are wrapped up into it. I mean, conspiracy theories work because they are so self-sealing. And in the same way that religious zealotry works that way, it's very self-sealing. You know, there, there are plot holes all over the place, but then there are key elements that tie it all together and protect the narrative that exists within those uh, capsules. 
and they they, off, they they provide a safety net for the individual and sort of a reward structure. And conspiracy theories took on a really interesting, I guess, place in our society, in, especially in America, in that we kind of turned the uh, this whole political uh, atmosphere into a pissing contest of who knows what and who has the intel and who has actually done their research and who hasn't on both sides. Uh, I really hate the both sides argument because I think you can critique both sides as much as you want, but I think there is a clear line of who, who is kind of more dangerous in the immediate. However, to that point, though, on both sides, it's there is this pissing contest going on of uh, everybody all of a sudden wants to be some expert on political science or an expert on uh, online extremism or global conflict, you know, and, and those types of uh, topics. And the, the movie sort of asks you to empathize with the reality that we aren't. You know, even uh, the professionals aren't in the know and that we need to have empathy for each other and a little bit of humility about ourselves. And I hope that's kind of the takeaway with this central character, albeit a very flawed character and somebody who we can clearly say is, see is making the wrong decisions. And and brilliantly played by Tina So. Is this this is one of his first movies, right? And how did you find him? And also um, Alexandria Payne, who plays his road trip buddy, I guess you'd call it. Is uh, she's the one that actually is the catalyst to the whole thing. Uh, she doesn't realize what she's about to do, and ultimately it is her fault if you want to place a blame. But how did you discover these two? And how did you manage to communicate like that shift in tone to them? Because there's a definite shift. Like you said, the first half hour is a certain is a certain movie, and the remainder is emotional and and, and dark, like surprisingly emotional. Yeah, part of that, like th- this this meeting Tynus and meeting Alexandria, plays into the like ultimate birth of the movie on the page. Like the words that then came out afterwards, once this concept was in place, was very much driven by them. I I had I, I'm an actor as well. And I was cast in a feature, a a small uh, independent feature bank heist movie that's akin to 12 Angry Men and or or Inside Man. And so the whole time we're all sitting around this table inside of this bank and spending every day on set together. So everybody got really close like one would in a a play or something, a a theater, a theater scenario. And Tynus and I just became fast friends. He's he's just this he, he couldn't be any more opposite than the character that he played which is then just another testament to the the power of this performance because he is just a wonderful, welcoming, friendly person. He's one of those guys that just really lights up a room and sort of can hold court with anybody. And and he is hysterical. I mean, his, his sense of humor is hilarious. And so being on set with him in between takes, you know, we just got to sit back and watch the Tynus show. And he, he just immediately leapt out at, at me as, as somebody who needed to have a movie wrapped around him and, 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 and sort of uh, filtering through him because he just had this in, immeasurable well of talent and energy to give. So as we got closer and closer, uh, inevitably, we start talking about the political atmosphere uh, and, and and just what's going on in the country. We, we were shooting this movie in early 2018, and he brought up Pizzagate and how how silly it was, but also that we both know those types of people. And we both understood that, you know, th- this can get really bad if, if we're not careful and if we don't nip this in the butt and and keep an eye on it Um, because we both kind of come from rural backgrounds you know blue collar families and such and so we understand this this kind of collective animosity and this collective pain 
uh, of the far right, albeit flawed and and highly misinformed, but real nonetheless and human nonetheless. And it, it literally was one uh, a light switch moment. We were on set one day talking about Pizzagate because nobody was talking about it then. It kind of came and went. Like I said, it was just a joke because nobody got killed in it. So we brought that up and both were pretty surprised that A, we knew somebody else who knew about Pizzagate and B, that we both thought it was kind of a little more serious than what it was uh, chalked up to be. And it was a light switch moment. Like I said, I had two or three projects gestating and in that moment, kind of looking at him as he's talking about this, it all just went and came together in my head. And I like saw the movie top to bottom. And, you know, I, I was actually ready to move to L.A. I was kind of giving up on Austin. I had been here for about 10 years and not a lot was going on in terms of forward momentum financially or professionally. And so we were going to go, uh, my partner and I were going to go uh, roll the dice in L.A. And after I met Tynus and kind of came up with this idea, I, I remember telling her, I was like, give me like 30 days. I'm going to write this script. Give me to the end of May. And this is 2018. As I, I was like, I think I might be on to something. And just kind of feverishly wrote this script. It all just came out really quickly. I handed over the first draft to her because she's kind of a producing partner of mine as well, on top of being a moral support and kind of keeping me sane. Handed it to her. She was the first one to read it and had that kind of, you know, like, I think this is a movie. I, th I think I think if, if you just film what's on paper here, uh, this is going to work. And showed it to Tynus. He loved it and it was written for him, which then kind of leads into why I think Alexandria ultimately gets cast as as his his opposite or his partner in the movie. It's, it's whatever that director, Kristen Rousseau, on the Bank Heist movie, it's called No Loss, No Gain, available now on VOD. Uh, I think whatever he saw in casting all of us together, I saw as well, there was some kind of energy between the three of us that we could kind of balance each other out on screen. Because um, then little that I know I would end up going on to play this giant character in the movie. I did not intend to play Philip, who's like the antagonist of the movie, but we just had such a hard time uh, casting that character that by the by the time we got to shooting it it had to be me. But yeah, it was it was like just that weird lightning bolt moment and, you know, wrote the script in 30 days and then 4 months later we were shooting it, which is crazy. That's one of the reasons why we had couldn't find a traditional producer to work with us is because nobody thought we could put this together in 4 months and we had a few people say, you know, if if you want to do this next year, I'll consider building this with you, but I'm not going to hop onto this train. It's going to come off the rails. Um, and it did not. <laughs> I can happily say it did not come off the rails. Why was that their first instinct that it was going to fly off the rails? Because making a feature film at this level is fairly traumatic, even if it goes well. And I think most of the time, these things don't really work out. A lot of times they don't see the light of day. I mean, this movie almost didn't, didn't come out. And so at this level, you're working with a lot of people who have been burned. And also you, you quickly find out the sobering reality that celebrity is everything. And I would literally meet with some producers who were, you know, no more established than I was, uh, but for maybe a little more money in the bank. But they'd be these producers that wouldn't wouldn't even really give me eye contact. And uh, they, they would say things like, well, I don't know who you are. Why would I make a movie with you? Like, why are people going to see your movie? You're ostensibly nobody. And I kind of had that naive notion that, well, I thought this 10 years of making 50 music videos and uh, creating this crew of, of like highly talented uh, technicians and having this really tight script in hand 
was enough. I thought that's how we make movies, you know, on the inside. But no, it really does live and die with celebrity. And so we we just couldn't get anybody to give us money. We couldn't get any producers to work on it. It, it was tough. And everybody who ended up working on the movie would, you know, because nobody got paid very well on this movie. We kind of took that Duplass Brothers approach where everyone across the board gets paid $100 a day, even even the DP. I didn't get paid. Uh, I ended up paying for the vast majority of the movie, but when we couldn't raise any money. Uh, yeah, it was one of those things where we knew that we were putting the right people in the right seat when they would come to us and say, I really like this script. It's really tight. It's really well written. It seems like you're you're really considering all of the beats here. It's not just kind of some loose blueprint of a movie. It, it really is kind of something that locks into itself. And so I think it was those types of people who actually took the time to read the script and know how to read a script that believed in it before it was shot. And those were the people that ended up kind of going through the uh, adventure with us. Yeah, I also wonder if people thought the, the moment was over or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and uh, inspiration is such a, an important um, aspect to independent filmmaking. If you're not completely all in, like the movie's never going to happen, you know, you and your team. So maybe people are sort of waiting you out. But you explored a lot of important ideas in the movie um, and in a funny way, too. When this character was presented with the idea of reality, like in one part, he was asked how these people going to sodomize children if they're lizards and uh, he just doesn't really want to hear it and then uh, later it's really funny line when he's confronted with his confederate flag license plate and she says i know what this the confederate flag is about it's about slavery and he's like that's not what they fought for and that part made me laugh very hard <laughs> yeah yeah the two-pack <laughs> you only had it on the front and the back because it was a, <laughs> got it in a two-pack <laughs> yeah I got to give that but, line to Tynus. I think that was an improv on his part, the two-pack line. <laughs> pretty, pretty damn funny. <laughs> it was revisited later on in, when the news broadcaster has to make the point yep. of saying that he had the flag on both the front and the back. Exactly. Yeah. Funny jokes, but important concept as well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's just that kind of theme with the movie of, of it's, it's funny until it's not there. There's this like constant duality with it all. And, you know, like, like you brought up how it gets brought up later in the movie. It's like so many of the touchstones of the movie actually kind of like collapse back in on themselves. And they sort of like the movie has this kind of palindrome shape to it where you're, you're seeing them kind of talk about what's about to happen. And then it sure enough, it does. You know, and so that's again, like it's just that thing where it bugs me to no end that we can't see something like Pizzagate in 2016 and not draw the line to like this eventually turns into they're going to storm a capital and, and get people killed. You know, it's it's all it's all kind of connected like that. It's all behavior based. And I think that's why I responded so well to this this character at the center of the Pizzagate, you know, uh, event. And, and I think that's why it works is just because the character is real. You know, and, and, and you could drop that character into any scenario. And as long as it's a real character who is com compelled by something, you know, in, in theory, that will make any plot kind of work. 
You said that you had a hard time casting for the role of Philip and you ended up playing the role of Philip. Then you see your performance as Philip. And I believe that might be a, a, a bit of a reach. If, like you're definitely exploring a, a personality that's not truly your own because that is a truly a deplorable human being. Why was it difficult to cast that role? Was it because of those characteristics? And were you just like, I'm just going to try to go there? Because you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. The people who auditioned for it were really skilled actors. They, they nailed their auditions. I think that was the character that we had the most callbacks for. So we had like really, really great submissions. But I think what it ultimately came down to was finding someone who could go toe to toe with Tynus. Because like I said, the movie was really tailored around him. It was written for him. I was trying to cast uh, everybody in his wake because he is such a like large character. And I think what happened was because we had spent so much time together developing the character and, and working on the script, because he, he helped like with all the rewrites and was really, really present for the entire process. It, it is very much Tynus, you know, like his work is very much in this movie. I think because we had spent that much time together, that when we start to say the lines, because I wrote them for him, I just knew exactly how to fit into his groove and 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 fall into it. I mean, there was there was one actor who who just crushed his audition, and I and I lo- I love him. He he did he does end up he, he did get a role in the movie eventually, but like he did a great job with the audition. But I just was looking at them, and I'm and I'm thinking like I don't believe that Tynus could beat this guy in a fight. I don't believe that this guy is compensating for something because Philip, the character that I play, is like definitely compensating for something and he's not very skilled and he's frustrated with who who he is or who he isn't in, in his reality. And the actor that was really close to getting the part was just this beautiful, you know, chiseled kind of, you know, good looking dude who who's just kind of got this. Uh, confidence about him. And I think Philip needed to be somebody who is jealous of Duncan, is chasing maybe what Duncan has. And without (laughs) diagnosing myself too much, for some reason, I was able to fit into that, I think. Well done on that performance. Thanks, man. Yeah, it was, uh, I wish I could have enjoyed it a little bit more because it did end up being a pretty fun role, but I was stressing the hell out while I was making it because, you know, there's some scenes without spoiling too much. There are some scenes where I'm in a pretty compromising uh, position. And, you know, if you can kind of imagine what that 12 hour day on set was like, one of the biggest action sequences in the movie, and I'm pretty exposed. And so, but I had to keep focused on uh, our prop guns and our you know pyrotechnics and our like this like really important action sequence that was really expensive and we really only had time for like one take per effect you know because we could only afford to build these effects once wow you shot that in one day yeah yeah i mean specifically the 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 so it's like the scene is fairly lengthy and we broke it up over at three days i think but the actual like action part of it the uh, the the gunfight um, yeah, it was all was all done in one day because you have to have a cop on set for that kind of stuff, and you have to let the city know. and And there's quite a bit of uh, procedure and policy that goes into those processes in order to make everything safe. And so it becomes a very expensive day. And so you better be a hundred percent sure of what you're shooting 
on that day because you really can't afford to do it again. So, and, and we took that incredibly seriously, especially since we were such a low budget movie. It's one of those situations where this is, this is where people do get hurt because everyone's wanting to cut corners. And I think I've just sustained enough damage in my life personally. Like, I've, you know, growing up in the country, you know, you just, you fall down a lot and fall off things and car accidents are kind of the norm. And I've just always been this hypersensitive safety nut on set to somewhat of a comedic degree to my uh, crew sometimes. But with something like that, when we're working with like, you know, prop guns and explosives and stuff, it was, you know, my heart was racing for 12 hours. It, it, it was it was an intense day, but clean, you know, and we got it done. It was safe and uh, it ended up working pretty well, I think, for the cut. Yeah, I think it worked out great. And um, I would love to talk about the sort of the role of media in your movie, um, because it ends where you're you're very much sort of turning the mirror onto the media itself. And there's uh, sort of an amazing interaction where Duncan says, people believe in you. I thought that was, and she, she replied or had said before uh, that my hands are perfectly clean, which I think is obviously like a sort of, I don't, I don't want to say your opinion of how the media feels, but it's sort of like it is kind of w what the general feeling out there is. The media like will not really take responsibility. Now, they're not the extreme enemy like Trump will claim or has claimed, but there's some kind of middle ground in there that you were exploring that I thought was poignant. Yeah, yeah, because I, th I think the proof is in the pudding and that it's like if they didn't know how much psychological control they had over their listeners, then why would they be dumping endless amounts of cash into these borderline uh, psyops kind of ad campaigns online? You know, where, where even myself running ads for this movie and, and, and trying to break it down, you get into the minutia of who your audience is, right down to their interests, their sexuality, their orientation, everything about their identity. You can go as far as you want and you start to immediately employ quite a bit of profiling and, 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 and quite a bit of dehumanizing activity because you're putting your dollars and cents into this. And this is coming from somebody who only could afford to put a few hundred dollars into it. So imagine what happens when you're putting putting millions of dollars into these things, you start to become very, very aware of the psychological power that you have over your listeners. And I just, I, I refuse to believe that they don't have a responsibility to that. It's, it's a power that they need to atone to. And in the same way with like the free speech thing where it's like, yeah, you can say whatever the hell you want, but you're not free of consequences. I think the same thing applies for people who are allowed to be on these private platforms and are allowed to spend money on psychologically manipulating its viewers, you know, because they, they are they are using those tools knowingly, you know, they, they are not uh, ignorant to what's going on. You don't spend that kind of money willy nilly, not knowing what you're doing. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Well said. And the uh, whole scene there at the climax of the movie, I'm not going to give anything away, but I'll say like it's told on a very intense, like violent level. And but that that point is communicated in a way that's not condescending or sort of like a, a, a better than thou type of attitude. You get both sides like you really do get both sides of that predicament that they're in, that they've gotten themselves into, you know, right down to the producer yelling, think about the company. And yeah. and that line, like, I don't know if you intended it to be so powerful, but that line got me because it's it's so it's so true. But the yeah. situation was so intense, too. But there's no there's no cause to care about 
human life at that point. No, no. And like the militia characters that these people, they're training in their ecosystem as much as the militia people are training in theirs. And so it is life or death to them. These this this currency of the production and the show that they put together is life or death to them. And so in the in the presence of a gun being drawn, you're going to raise the specter of those types of values that they have within their own ecosystem. And yeah, that that's as far as representing both sides, that's you know, that comes down to just sticking to well-rounded characters. You know, as a writer, you wanna and as the maker and, and producer and somebody who has to sit with these characters for years and and do things like this, where I have to come here and kind of care about what I'm talking about, you better care about the characters and you better be able to defend your characters on the paper for better or worse. You know, by no means saying that Terry Lee or or Alex Jones stand in is uh, somebody that I believe in, but I have to find a way, I have to find what they believe in. And in some ways she does say things I think that kind of make you do a double take, especially if you're a proud leftist, you know, progressive, as I would sort of ascribe to. She says some things that kind of make a good point, you know, that we try to simplify things and we try to find uh, villains like we do in movies to simplify narratives. But the sad reality and the responsibility that is on us is that we have to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. We have to see that the media is responsible and so are the people whose fingers are on the triggers, literally. And, it, and it, it takes like a collective effort. And a lot of these characters in this movie are very binary. You know, they have their side of the aisle, their tribe that they will defend right to the bitter end. And hopefully the movie's kind of uh, exposing that kind of uh, downfall uh, of that type of indoctrination that you sort of apply to yourself over years. And it, that mechanism of you live by the sword, you die by the sword type of deal. And... um Tell us about uh, death threats. Did you you get death threats because of this movie? I did, yeah. Um, I will say, you know, when it's put in a headline, it makes it seem a little heavier than it is, uh, which is great for marketing. But uh, I did have a lot of, like, friends and family kind of reach out after that, like, are you okay? And the answer is yes, I'm fine. For many reasons, because, you know, it's not, it's, it's dwarfed by how many people actually like the movie and how many people actually understand the movie. They all occurred before the movie was out. I have not gotten one since the movie's been out. And I'm hoping that that is because these people see the movie and they realize, oh, this isn't just about punching down and, 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 and kind of like making fun of ignorant people. You know, it is this kind of empathetic look into our neighbors because that's what they are, our neighbors. They're not our enemies. I think that because the the thing that they are serving is so shallow and so empty that when they make a death threat, it's more just uh, hot air. I I don't believe that they're going to follow through with it because I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think these people realize that uh, whether whether they know it consciously or not, that it's not real. And uh, it's and if it is, it's certainly not going to be affected by somebody like myself. If your movement is so shallow that an independent, a low budget independent film with like no marketing spend uh, can completely take your movement down, then maybe the movement was never alive to begin with. So I think what we're dealing in is just people outbursting and th- their identities are bruised by their life lived. And it's not really the conspiracy theory that they're believing in that's going to drive them. Now, that said, that is what really intrigued me about this Pizzagate 
uh, scenario and this this man that was at the center of it. To think that somebody with children could load up his car with a uh, assault rifle and shotgun and pistol and, and drive across state lines in broad daylight and even be talking to himself from his dashboard cam, at no point during that entire time is he like, maybe I should rethink this. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't correct. And then to to make such a cataclysmic mistake of intel and not knowing that there wasn't even a basement in this pizza place to begin with, because the whole notion was that there was a child sex trafficking network being ran out of the basement of pizzerias across the country, and this particular pizzeria didn't even have a basement. And so it, it, it was wild to me that somebody could believe something so shallow that they would do what they did, you know. And I think that I'm glad that nobody got killed, but I think it's possible they could have, and I think that it's possible that he could have perpetrated that, even though he was very remorseful. And very apologetic and once he got inside there the light switch came on and he realized oh this is all bullshit turned himself in peacefully it could have easily turned into a situation where he has you know a, an itchy trigger finger you know because when you're when you are in situations like that not that i've ever been in a gunfight but you know i've been in some hairy situations uh you know your calculus changes pretty quickly and your your the the depth of your decision making narrows very very quickly and you and you do kind of go into reflex mode it, it's pretty wild and there's there's no reason to discount something like that just because no one was shot and killed or injured he had a moment where he realized this like you said this is bullshit but that's that's not the case with with a number of other public shootings. I mean, that's not the case with the riots at the Capitol. Like those, those were followed through. So I think what 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 your movie does is is show like a very realistic portrayal of what could have happened if somebody did have that psychotic break at that moment instead of the realization moment. Yeah, it it tries to kind of traverse that like overt saturation of the brain and the susceptibility of all of us to be able to like eventually. Uh, carry out these types of acts because uh, you know when you watch the movie you realize like there are literally off ramps left and right for these guys to stop there's literally there's clues everywhere telling them like this is not going to go well you need to stop um duncan even at one point uh denies the the mission right he he says no i'm not going to go but it's when his pride is sort of uh, dethroned, then then that's kind of when he decides, okay, yeah, I'm going to go do this stupid thing. Because it really is, I think, just wrapped up in some sort of lack of identity and, and, and pride that people have within themselves and wanting to feel seen. And when you kind of deprive people of that, they will do uh, strange things. What about film inspirations for this? You know, there's things that I want to do as a filmmaker just for the fun of it. Um, I'm a big fan of kind of old westerns and like like that that kind of 70s era Sam Peckinpah neo westerns. But it also thematically works because, like I said earlier, I want these I want it to reflect how I think a lot of these people really do view themselves to be in the shell of a movie. You know, I, we're, we're all sort of susceptible to that where we think like we're the main character in our own story and that that the the world revolves around us. And I think that when you when you kind of get to know some of these people or, or like people who go into the military or who, who are really obsessed with weaponry and, and, and guns and stuff, they do speak in terms as if they, you would almost think like, do you think that there's cameras rolling? Do you think that this is a movie and that, 
your life lives and dies by the logic of, of, of movie logic. That said, do you think you're John Wayne? Like, or are you the observer, you know, the bystander? Or are you the villain? And I think a lot of these people who find themselves in these situations breaking into the Capitol and, you know, and, and heroically pushing through the barricades and, and everything, you, you see these costumes that they're wearing, these symbols that they're putting on themselves and a lot like these Punisher, like superhero symbols. And it's like you think about the psychology of that, that, that A, they had to find themselves believing in this uh, environment and, and in this belief structure and then buying, like spending their money on these trinkets and these costumes pieces uh like like you would a ward- wardrobing out a movie or something and and they've got the 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 new gloves the powerful punching gloves and the guns and all the you know it's just like the whole pageantry of it all it, it's as though they think they're they're playing make-believe mix that desire and that that kind of fun to sort of step outside of who you actually are with uh disinformation campaigns and like I was saying earlier, this this saturation of the brain, those two things start to merge because we're simple creatures, I think. I think we're a lot more simple than we, we think we are. And we have to understand that we're susceptible to brainwashing. I mean, we see it all the time. It's not just in conspiracy theories. It's in political movements. It's in the church. It's on sports teams. You know, this this notion where we, we buy the overpriced jersey of our favorite player and we paint our face, face like an idiot like a child, and then we go to a, a stadium with other people and act like children and scream and, and hoot and holler. I mean, that's a like multi-billion dollar industry. That really says something about us more so than whatever you could write about capitalism or something or the powers and the mechanisms of capitalism. And even though the movie does sort of really target these people at the head of this capitalistic media machine, it does hopefully try to indict the people who play the role and who kind of like take take the uh, the bullshit that's being handed to them as well because again there's there's a duality to it it would be so easy if we could just say donald trump is the issue and if we eradicate donald trump everything goes away and it's just not the case you know it's it's unfortunate uh that that it's not the case but it, it it's just how it is you know 75 million people voting for him a second time is far more concerning to me that's the kind of thing that keeps me up late at night uh more so than like some racist thing that he said that day on Twitter or some, you know, crazy ass stunt that he pulled or, or some like criminal uh, uh, activity that's emerging. And, and, you know, Robert Mueller and all these people like, oh, my God, like we're, we're going to find that smoking gun. It's like, cool. Well, you know, while that gun, while everyone's trying to find the smoking gun, there's 75 million people lining up to vote for him. That's kind of the, the scary thing, in my opinion. Right. And the, and the more the someone like him is vilified and and attacked by the mainstream media the more powerful someone like that gets because then it's more of the underdog versus corporate media versus you know the machine which is like Correct. it's an incredible uh it's an incredible juxtaposition i guess if if that's the right way to put it like cuz it's it's right there in the makeup it's followers are the underdog they're looking up to their leader because they themselves identify with being the underdog and so the second the opposition turns their leader into the underdog it just makes them more they they see themselves more and more in this person who couldn't be any further from them uh more more so than any president we've probably ever had uh donald trump couldn't be any further from his followers profile that that you you, you you couldn't write that like that idea would have been laughed out of a pitch meeting you know until it actually happened that was uh that was very well said much better than the way i, I was trying to put it but um 
some, <laughs> sometimes sometimes just like thinking about these things gets me like gets my brain so twisted anyway like how is it how is it this way when it's so clearly not this way in your movie you did a great job again putting it on screen in a way that was watchable entertaining it had that emotion to it and you did mention um the character of the one that Lee Eddy played Terry Lee She's at one point speaking directly into the camera, directly at at you, the viewer. And and you feel like you are experiencing the crux of the whole thing. Was that the intent? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like that's 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 the like I wanted to put people in the perspective of of being seduced and being hypnotized. And the, the movie writ large forces you, you know. You go in there with your beliefs on 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 Pizzagate, QAnon, and conspiracy theories, but once you kind of engage with the movie, you're kind of second guessing yourself the whole time, right up until the bitter end, where you're you know you're like, did that happen or did that not happen? And you don't really know, and it forces you to take a side without having all of the information. And so the idea is supposed to be that I wanted to put viewers into the shoes of these people who do have to uh, who do find themselves having to make these decisions do i believe in lizard people or not and within the rules of the movie you really don't know and you do have to kind of decide where do you stand on this and that's why i thought it was super important to kind of make sure that this terry lee character who is abhorrent does make enough points to make you kind of stop and, and kind of get you know like like do it a little double take yeah and that, that that's a performance i don't want to go unnoticed or unmentioned that she brilliantly played it off and she was that alex jones character and again i'm i'm just so impressed with the the, the level of performances that you got out of these these actors for for such difficult roles Yes. And, and, and I knew right from the get go that that was going to be the big challenge was casting this thing because it is so like character heavy and there's so many lines. And that's part of the design being a low budget movie is that you almost are making a, a mumblecore movie to an extent, just a, a, more in this kind of comedic Southern Gothic tone. But yeah, she is she's a powerful actor. And I've watched her for many years and really admired her. She was cast in a smaller part of the movie because originally the role was written for a man. I, I thought that I was trying to look for a Alex Jones impersonator. And all I got then were really great Alex Jones impersonations. And uh, it just didn't it didn't feel like it fit into the world of this movie. It felt like a cheap shot because everything else about the movie I thought was pretty well established, well researched and kind of rich in and of itself outside of the reality that it's kind of mirroring. And so something fell off. I couldn't find this character and I reached out to her because she's just been around longer and has a better network of actors, the Rolodex of the mind she was able to draw from. She gave me some uh, suggestions of uh, really, really talented actors here in Austin. But ultimately then, you know, I said, I'm even willing to consider switching the sex of this character if need be, because we were, we were about three weeks out from shooting. And that's when she kind of said, okay, well now I want to tell you that I would really like to audition for this character. And I was just blown away because I look up to her so much. And she's uh, she's a heavy hitter here in Austin. You know, she's she's kind of a sought after performer. And so I thought that it was a little out of my weight class to get her to A, play a character that revolting and B, just be on set for that many days for such little pay. But she really responded to the script again. And she thought this was something cool. She liked our work previously. And so she sent in this audition that she kind of described as a, a hybrid between Laura Ingram and Rachel Maddow. And uh, which I loved because that's a nice duality. It's not just this far-flung impersonation of a right-wing fringe character. It also is, is sort of imbued with this kind of 
saint of the left in the media with, with Rachel Maddow. And yeah, the, the audition she gave me was what you saw. And I, and I remember when she came on set, we were about three weeks into the shoot. Everybody's really tired. You're starting to get kind of loosey-goosey. You're losing sense of the outside world because you're doing these 15-hour days. And she came on set and, and her first scene was that opening monologue of hers where she just has to really nail this speech. And it's that shot, like you said, it just slowly zooms in on her for about two minutes. And when she did that, you could literally feel the electricity in the room sort of start rising and everybody's game sharpened immediately. And that's a really fun thing to witness happen. It's, it's the power of acting like in its most tangible form. And I think it's really good for crews to see because cast and crew have this adverse uh, adversarial kind of relationship with each other. And when an actor can put forth such a strong performance that it causes all of the crew to kind of tighten up and go, oh man, we got to start really like focusing here and bring our A game so that we can show up for this. That's a really cool thing and a rare thing to see because most of the time it happens the other way around. An actor shows up and they're kind of overwhelmed and blown away by all the machinery and the the the, the army of ants moving around. You know, when, when people, when family members of mine get to like see what this stuff looks like, when we're making it, they're, they're always like blown away. You know, I, I remember my sister came to visit me one time when I was just producing a music video and people were showing up for the wardrobe and, and makeup and everything. And she's like, there's a lot of people here. And I was like, yeah, like what, I mean, this, this is a small business. This is, you know, there are a lot of gears that have to come together to make these shots work. You know, it's not just you push the red button on the camera and say, go, you know, there, there's there's countless moving parts, you know, and eventually you just have to abandon some of them because there's not enough time in the day or hands on the arms to actually like move all the levers. And so, it, it, you know, all that to say it was it was a powerful performance that we felt on the set. And I think really resonated through uh, when it was rendered out on, on screen. People really do see that performance and kind of get blown away by it. And, and it should be. I mean, she's the antagonist of the movie. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in your, your character is only as interesting as the threat that faces them. You know, it's, it's that Darth Vader effect. Luke's not half as interesting without Darth Vader. So I definitely wanted to achieve that with this character. And, and getting one of my favorite actors on the planet to do it was quite a treat. And Tim's not quite as interesting without me. So I get what there you're you saying. There you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but, um, so I know on these low budget movies, sometimes the, the, the common food to, to be ordered uh, is pizza. Was that banned from your set? Was it... we, we had pizza one day. And <laughs> you just couldn't stomach it? Uh, no, no, no. It, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a really nice like, late night gift because we were running. Uh, we had a late night shoot. It was, it was during the shootout scene uh, in that house. And our armor, it was like one of his last big days on set. And the armor like bought pizza for everybody. Uh, so it was nice just to have that treat. But I am really proud of what we did with the catering. Because like you said, on a low budget movie, you never know what you're going to get. But to that point, when you're not paying people enough what they're worth, you better feed them well. And my partner is an incredible, incredible cook. And she uh, has a, a really, really great friend who's also an incredible cook. And so they teamed up and part of her like producerial duties on the movie was to make sure that we had the best food imaginable on set. And it totally went off without a hitch. Like every day was incredible meals. I had all these like seasoned uh, 
technicians coming up to me saying, I've never eaten this well on a movie. I've been on like multi-million dollar movies and this food is incredible. We never ran out. It was always uh, different. And she she definitely became the, the VIP of that production. She was pulling the longest days. She would get up before me in the mornings, get everything ready and, and heated because it was all like frozen and prepared. And then she would, she would prepare it that morning. We would load up the van and go to set and, and turn on the lights and get everything going. And then she would go home after lunch and just start doing it all over again. And I would show up later once we wrapped and I'd show up and she'd just, you know, like an octopus, just arms going everywhere. There's pots going, it's all timed out. It, it was like one of the most inspiring aspects of the movie. It really kept me going to see how thorough she was and how much, how present she was to showing up to this extraordinarily important task of feeding your army, you know? That's awesome. And, and it, it, was, it was incredible. I was, I was just so moved by it. I love it when a question that I I just consider to be a joke and like a throwaway has like such a reaction. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's, it's I love that. That's that's such an awesome moment, especially because you know, like if anyone has made a, an independent film, you know how tough it is. Like, you know, of course, everyone's asking a thousand questions. Your mind's going everywhere, and and just to have that staple of someone who understands the importance of hey. If they're eating, they're going to be happy. At, in that moment, they'll be happy. And that'll that'll translate to, you know, perhaps their performance or however they perform. Like the audio guy will be sharper now that his stomach's full, you know? And yes, she just yeah. understood that. I, I'd love it. Yeah. And, and it's, food is just such a direct way to express uh, love for one another. You know, I think that's why like meals are so coveted is, is, is that there's usually somebody behind them making it and tailoring it in with, with thought and care. And you have to to care about your crew and you have to love your crew because they are the ones that are making the movie and far too often they just get cast off to the side as grunts and that's just not where I come from. I think I just spent too much time making my own stuff to, to understand how much they are actually doing for a project. You, you can do everything you want to prepare your movie. You can shot list it. You cast it perfectly. You can get everything set up. But the second the day starts and the second you start rolling the camera, the movie is going to become that, you know, like, and you have to atone to that. You have to see what is the movie wanting to become. And it, and it really is off the hands of these technicians, these, these the, the grips and the electricians and the makeup and wardrobe, the catering, armors, the stunt doubles, the cast, you know, it's just like everything. It's just, it's all, it becomes their movie. And then my job at that point is to make sure they can do the best work possible because you realize that they've, they've got the wheel now. You know, there's kind of a saying that the last thing you get to do as a director is cast it. Once you've cast it, that's like 90% of your job. And I really do believe that. Uh, it, it, it had to become their movie because they're the ones making it. They're the ones moving everything around. They're putting the bricks up. And so the last thing we're going to do is is treat them like dogs, you know. Treat them like house dogs. We'll give them really good food and, and cuddles and rubs. But, uh, you know... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't want to treat them like trash. They, they're they're uh, worth more than gold, in my opinion. So what's next on your slate for productions? Well, I'm, I'm really steering hard into this horror film kind of world. I, I've always adored horror films, but as a filmmaker, you spend so much time kind of idolizing these elite film festivals and this, uh, this perception of the elite film culture that kind of turns its nose up to horror films. And it was that very same culture that turned its nose up to me and my film. And it was that same culture that dismissed the work that we had put into it. Like none of the festivals in Austin uh, didn't even like get us, like we didn't even get in the door. I wasn't expecting to win South by Southwest. 
by any means, but to not get in after being a part of the film community here for 10 years, making what I thought was a very solid effort for a film. Uh, It's completely cast and crew. It's all Austin based. All of our money went back into the Austin community um, and to just completely be ignored by it was a big wake up call to me. And uh, lo and behold, the audience that saved this movie were horror audiences. It was this producer who came on after the fact that kind of shepherded the movie through to distribution and to release who said, you need to start focusing on horror festivals. And this is not a horror film, but it has the bones and it has the ethos and kind of that atmosphere and the tone. And that's really what saved the movie. And so uh, I love and care about my audience. I, I make movies for people. Uh, it's not just some kind of you know masturbatory exercise on my part. It really is... I don't like movies that much to just do them for myself. There has to be an audience for it to share something and build community. And so to be uh, so warmly welcomed by that community, I just I want to give back to that. And so I have been really writing some pretty exciting little horror films that I'm hoping to get into production uh, early next year. Can't wait. Looking forward to uh, whatever whatever else you have coming along. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be more. I think I think I'll be able to at least get one more made. I think this movie sort of at least set me up to get one more made, and then we'll see what I do with that. Well, congratulations um, on the film, The Pizzagate Massacre, and thank you so much for joining us here on Crawl Space. Thanks so much for having me. It was it was a big pleasure, and I and I appreciate all the the love and support. And where's the best place that people can go to watch this important work of art? Yeah, you know, like like I think the number one spot right now is Amazon. Uh, we are on Prime. It's not free uh, at the moment, but it is a very cheap rental. It's a cheap purchase. Uh, it looks great, but it's also on Vudu. It's on iTunes. It's on Apple TV. All the major VOD platforms where you uh, typically would go to stream a movie or, or buy or rent one, it's currently available there. And hopefully if it does well enough, here, then it will kind of find a home on one of the other streaming platforms for free. So we need people to support it now to make it something that seems viable for uh, one of these streaming platforms to put out, you know, to become a, a prime video or something or, or uh, something on Shutter or Hulu, Netflix, HBO, that kind of thing. So yeah, you can go find it there. And then of course, there's links to it on all of our social media pages, the Pizzagate Massacre. We're kind of all over the place. I'm super available. I always like to hear from uh, would-be fans and help direct them as to where to go. But you know, to answer your question again, circling back around, uh, Amazon seems to be the easiest place to find it. 